to episode 201 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. If you've been listening to the Energy Talks podcast the last couple of episodes, I've been talking about a column I'm writing about the incumbency dilemma. What happens to especially to large companies when their markets and their technologies are disrupted, but they don't have an obvious pivot to another competitive business model. What do they do? How do they handle that? And I write about it in the context of the Alberta oil and gas industry. Well, imagine how delighted I was to discover that one of my favorite interviewees, Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon from the University of Calgary, has co-authored a School of Public Policy paper on this entitled Mission Impossible, the Influence of Incumbent Industries on Mission-Oriented Innovation Policy Targeting Carbon Lock-in. So welcome to the interview, Sarah. Great to be back. Well, it is nice to have you back. It's been many months since we last talked, and we'll uh, we'll have to make sure that we don't go as long between interviews next time. But I'm really interested in this, and I want to. I guess I want to start this off this our conversation with my take on this, and then you can tell me what you think about that and how that uh, is consistent or isn't consistent with the argument you set out in this paper. So. What I argue is that disrupted uh, industries, they they look for a pivot uh, to an, a, a complementary business model. And I use the example of the auto industry, which when Tesla and now BYD and other Chinese manufacturers disrupted their industry with electric vehicles, um, they said, okay, look, um, the, an EV has an electric propulsion system, it has a battery, it has batteries, power electronics. It's not the automobiles that we're accustomed to, but it's still an automobile. And we can and we can figure out how to make EVs and, and supply chains and, and so on. And I it, the jury is still out is if all the legacy automakers are going to make the pivot, but certainly there are almost all of them are trying and uh, with varying levels of success. But if you look at the Alberta oil and gas industry, they have no obvious pivot. What's the, what's the pivot from oil and gas? I Now, I've argued that in other places, it could be into feedstock for advanced materials, but the industry doesn't see it like that. And what they've done instead is the other option available to an incumbent, which is to retrench in the status quo, to cut costs, to cut, to, uh, uh, approach government for subsidies and other favorable policies and so on. And that, in from my point of view, that explains the behavior of the Alberta's, particular, particularly the oil sands companies uh, in the last say, three, four, five years. So that's my argument. Is that consistent with what you're talking about in the paper? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think I think one way that I would frame what you're talking about now is sort of as a an example or a mechanism of carbon lock-in, which is part of the story that we get to, right? And so carbon lock-in is this well-studied phenomenon that is um, really a carbon-specific form of a more general, and I'll use a lot of like academic words, but I'll come back and define them, of path dependency, which basically, you know, in simple terms, just says that the decisions that we make in the past, 
influence the choices that we have in the future. And there are different mechanisms through which that can happen. So, you know, an obvious one is infrastructure. So if you build up a bunch of um, roads or you build up a bunch of um, manufacturing infrastructure, that tends to keep you on that same path. You're going to have strong forces that are trying to make sure you make use of that. And if you want to make changes, it takes a lot of work to, you know, take those things down and put other things in their place. Um, and another uh, mechanism of, of uh, carbon lock-in, another way in which we see our high carbon systems stay entrenched is really through political power that in certain groups and certainly incumbent uh, interests have. And so, you know, I think it's well, you know, I would argue that, that it's the literature really explores, I think, quite well the idea that certainly fossil fuel incumbents are um, have been and you know by all accounts are continuing to use that power that political power they have to try to delay a transition and and maintain demand for for their product and so what what we um you know what we've done in this paper is sort of take that piece and say okay so you know here, here's what we know about carbon lock-in and on the other hand we have this you know, growing call for the idea that, well, in order to break that lock-in, we need some kind of mission, right? And so the most famous missions that people maybe have heard of would be the Moonshot or the Manhattan Project. Sometimes even people call even for a climate mission or a, a Manhattan Project for climate. Um, but a mission is really just um, a description of a, a kind of government innovation policy approach where the government, the state, defines some kind of goal and then supports that goal uh, with significant funding um, throughout. And so what we're sort of looking at in this paper is really saying that, you know, these missions, they, they may well be a good way to address this carbon lock-in, but what's not being considered is how the power and influence that incumbents have comes into play in actually defining the missions. And that's a big problem if we're not paying attention to, you know, how that's happening. And, and I think we are seeing that happen. We have examples of that happening already uh, today. I'm a fan of uh, economist Mariana Mazzucato, who talks about mission-oriented uh, uh, policies. And she brings up the case of the, the U.S. government, and it has the the, uh, the solar shot, the hydrogen shot. I mean, they're, I, I, these aren't well known in Canada, but uh, they're taking that approach, Mosquitoes approach, and, and they put it into into the U.S. Department of Energy's, particularly into their into their portfolio. And is that the kind of approach that you're suggesting? Uh, might be useful in Alberta. Yeah, so I mean, I'm also, you know, certainly very interested in mission innovation as an approach. And I mean, this paper, to give you sort of the history of it, came about um, based on, you know, some realizations that I had while I was doing research for, for the previous work that I did showing that, you know, AOSTRA and the development of the oil sins in Alberta was really an example of mission innovation. Um, and, and so the idea that, you know, we could go down the path of the US, which is, you know, had a lot of strong missions within, as you say, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense over, you know, the history of the US has a has a lot of examples of mission innovation. Um, and where the, you know, where the gap is, or where I think my co-author and I point out what's sort of missing in the conversation is, there's a lot of attention paid to the way that missions can help sort of down the road. Um, but there's much less attention paid to are you actually even able to set up that mission in the first place? And what happens when at the beginning, at the starting line of your mission, um, there's other 
literature that we you know also discussed in the paper that shows that incumbents they do you know there, there are examples where they do respond and in you know particular responding to things like renewables and others when they start to threaten their market share directly and really what we're arguing is that if you want to use this mission approach to address climate <laughs> that that may well be a good thing to do but we need to be more aware of the way incumbents will it will sort of shape what the mission itself is and you know i'm sure we'll get into that but i mean one of the missions that we hear i think often discussed in alberta is this idea of you know low carbon oil or low carbon fossil fuels um and so it's it's you know is that the mission or is the mission actually um you know alberta producing its other resources the the lithium and other materials that exist in the ground um, and it's really in that defining of the mission where incumbents come in and the risk is that if you you know sort of get it wrong you can put a lot of money towards something that either um you know it's, it's sort of ends up not being the real solution but is really more targeted at preventing you know significant kind of loss in, in incumbent market share the issue of the uh reducing emissions it, now is that to make the industry more competitive in a low carbon market or is it to combat climate change well the industry of course argues that it's both but really the emissions that the Alberta industry is targeting are, are scope one and two. So their own emissions and those of their supply chain, but not scope three, which is basically the, you know, the turning of their, their, their feedstock into uh, gasoline and diesel and aviation fuel, which then gets burned. And that's where 80% of the emissions come from. And none of them have, and no oil company really has a solution for scope three emissions yet. And so I would argue that the the emissions reduction proposals that have been put forward by groups like Pathways Alliance for the oil sands producers is really about com uh, market competitiveness, not any kind of climate, uh, you know, uh, response to the climate crisis. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's fair. And I think it's, you know, you see it in terms of and that's kind of the missing piece in the whole conversation of the climate mission setting in Alberta, which is that if we are going to be successful in avoiding the worst impacts of climate change, we are going to, we, you know, the, the world, the, the globe are, are going to dramatically reduce our consumption of fossil fuel over the next, you know, coming decades. And that piece is, as you say, I think very much missing from the core of the, you know, emission reduction plans that we see coming from the fossil fuel industry, which are very focused on those upstream emissions. Um, you know, interestingly, and maybe this is a bit of an aside, but but I always find it kind of interesting how quickly the the dialogue or the the kind of discussion around this has changed. You know, I, I'm old enough, which is not that old, to remember when uh, it was exactly the opposite, right? That the oil companies were very focused on talking all about how the majority of emissions came not from the production of the oil, but from the combustion, right? This argument of, well, we shouldn't, you know, worry too much about the upstream emissions in the oil sands being higher because the majority of emissions come from the combustion. Um, and, and now we have, you know, a complete 180 where the industry is really focused on those upstream uh, emissions because that's what they can control. And the, you know, Ango community and, and kind of people focused on climate solutions um, are, are more focused on the, you know, full life cycle and downstream. And I think that that really has come about exactly because 
we, we have seen a significant change in a short period of time of both sort of level of ambition, but also how quickly we are able to run on the technology side of actually, you know, getting, having a net zero emissions target, right? That was not really on people's radar, certainly 10 years ago, maybe even more recently than that. Um, but that, you know, coming back to the, to the central point, that's really the big challenge of, you know, if your mission is somehow compatible, if it is a climate mission, it has to be at the very least compatible with the idea that you're going to have dramatic reduction in uh, consumption. And that's going to, you know, have big changes in terms of both who can actually be competitive, the total market size, and also the, um, the value of that market. Um, and, and that's really missing completely from the conversation. And I think it's, it's missing exactly for the kind of reasons that we talk about in the paper, which is if you look at historical missions, um, you, you simply don't find missions where uh, a powerful incumbent industry was threatened, right? So aside from those famous ones that I mentioned, there are certainly uh, really interesting examples of mission innovation in the pharmaceutical sector. Um, but in that case, the benefits from those missions are either you know, going directly to the same companies, so the same pharmaceutical producers, or at least they're sort of offsetting losses that would have happened otherwise. Um, and the same is true within the agricultural sector. And in the paper, we look at a case study of, of Alberta, which is looking at the development of the oil sands. And we find you know, similar evidence there that you really only had um, Aostra and the development of SAG-D and, and the production of oil sands going forward when you reach the point that the conventional oil industry um, had had started to decline. That is, you started to produce more uh, conventional oil than you were finding, and there was a sort of general um, uh, agreement and acknowledgement that this was happening. And only then did the conventional incumbents um, really remove their opposition. They didn't necessarily embrace it, um, but they removed their opposition to development of the oil sands. And you, you know, you, you can see that both through their own communications with government, and then you also see it in government policies where you had, um, you know, a big shift from a time when the oil sands was uh, in, you know, regulation or in legislation constrained to one where it was uh, being pursued. I want to talk about how the oil and gas companies in Alberta think about the energy transition, because they've made it very clear that they agree, they don't agree with the International Energy Agency and BP and Rystad and all of Bloomberg NEF, these uh, organizations that are forecasting peak oil demand in like 20, you know, between 2028 and 2030, and then decline in the, you know, early to, to mid, mid 30s. Uh, rather, they stick to and sometimes, you know, outdated forecasts that that actually show uh, growth out to 2040 or 2050 in oil demand, global oil demand, or uh, they say, OK, that's fine, uh, but we're going to be the last oil producer standing. And even in the IEA's net zero uh, by 2050 uh, scenario, there's still 25 million barrels a day of oil that's uh, this being consumed, we're going to be, we're going to supply that 25 million barrel uh, market. And who knows whether they can do that or not? Nobody, we haven't seen any modeling. Nobody, you know, closest we've come is some recent uh, uh, Canadian energy regulator modeling for net zero. Uh, but it's very, what they've done is, is they essentially use that narrative 
to blunt any kind of policy aimed at reducing reduction, whether it's at the federal government level and certainly at the provincial government level, because you hear Premier Danielle Smith, you hear Energy Minister Brian Jean echoing their narratives all the time. And so they've essentially almost captured the provincial government and using it as a shield to slow down any kind of policy from the federal government that will likely affect their output over the next, you know, between now and 2050. Yeah, so a couple couple of thoughts there. I mean, I think one, you know, the idea of a, an industry and an income, powerful incumbent industry being able to influence government, I mean, that very much is really that that lever of, of you know political power that you see in lock-in and again you know not certainly not unique to the oil and gas industry and not unique to Alberta in that when you have a powerful incumbency um, that that does manage to you know influence government in, in all kinds of ways um, when it comes to kind of the goal and, and what is trying to be achieved um, you know I think there is a lot of we've heard a lot of language lately about the federal government trying to reduce production, right, which is sort of, I, I would say I don't know where this idea came from, but I think you can kind of see where the seed was planted to, to change what the government's actually doing, which is to talk about emissions into a, into a production cap. Um, but then coming back to kind of where you started with, you know, what, what does future demand look like and where does Alberta sit and how competitive is it? Um, as you, as you said, right, you have increasingly number of different agencies and, and organizations that create scenarios for future oil demand saying that, you know, peak oil is coming. And there's a clear trend that that peak oil is coming sooner and sooner as you kind of year by year, those forecasts shift. Um, I mean, recently you had the um, the Chinese oil company itself saying that uh, transportation oil demand in China, you know, is, is basically peaking. So I think that while it was maybe debatable um, a few years ago where, you know, how quickly this would happen and where we are in this transition, I think the the evidence is really starting to mount that indeed, you know, electric vehicle vehicle adoption is happening at a um, at an increasing rate and that that is really consistent with the um, with the more aggressive scenarios for decline in demand for oil. Um, and actually, if you go and look at, you know, the IEAs, they, they do this interesting analysis where they look at which sectors are on a path that is compatible with the net zero transition. Um, and unfortunately, we have a long way to go on many sectors. Um, but one that stands out as being compatible is actually electrification of personal transportation, which is a substantial um, uh, source of demand for for oil. So so there they're basically saying we are on a pathway to be net zero by 2050 when it comes to transportation. So all of these, you know, really mounting evidence that um, that we are very much on a pathway of, of declining uh, demand for oil. Um, and then the question, as you say, of, okay, so doesn't mean it's going to go to zero, who's going to end up being most competitive. And that's where the narrative starts to get a little bit, I think, muddled in terms of, you know, certainly as a starting point, if the if the requirement to be a producer of choice in 2040, 2050 is to be low cost and low carbon, um, then Alberta has a challenge, right? Not because of we're not, we don't have good engineers, but because of the nature of the resource, you know, being high carbon. And this is where I think that the industry is, is sort of walking this, trying to walk this fine line of saying, we are going to be the low cost, uh, you know, the, the low cost competitor, 
but oh, we need, you know, more than the tax credit, we need something like 75% um, support from the federal government to pay and, and provincial government to pay for the emissions reductions we need to do to get there. And that part I find very hard to square of sort of, you know, either you are going to be the low cost producer because you believe that you can, you know, implement whatever it is, carbon capture and storage or electrification at a competitive price, or, you know, you're saying that you need substantial subsidies because you can't, but, but it sort of doesn't work both ways. Or if your argument is we're going to be the lowest cost producer because we're going to offload all of our costs onto the public, then, you know, that strikes me as not really a, a, a you know, competitive business model, right? You're really basically just asking for the, the Canadian public to subsidize production um, for you. And so that's where it all sort of, I think, starts to, the, the, case for it starts to fall apart, but it is all very consistent, on the other hand, with this framework of saying that, you know, an industry will will look for support of in technology development for technologies that um, that enable, you know, that don't disrupt its market share. Right. And so I think that's, you know, very much what we see happening um, and very much the risk that I see is that this, you know, climate mission or climate moonshot gets co-opted into, you know, significant public funds flowing into an area that's unlikely to, um, you know, end up being uh, being highly profitable uh, at the end of the day. Uh, in my column, I'm going to be exploring a, a related dilemma, the disrupt disruption dilemma. And that is, uh, or sorry, the, uh, yeah, the disruption dilemma. So the question becomes when the incumbent is disrupted and they thinking about a response, how do they innovate? Do they innovate inside the company? Like, do they set up a skunk works to develop new technologies and processes or services? Do they uh, do they invest in startups that they eventually might uh, buy? For instance, we saw Oxy Petroleum, Occidental Petroleum, down in the states buy the Canadian-based uh, carbon engineering company. Uh, you know, which is a, an example of that that kind of strategy. And I argue in the oil uh, in the column that the oil and gas, the Canadian oil and gas industry is fantastic at innovating inside the box. If you want to solve a production problem in the oil sands or conventional oil, you can set loose a bunch of Canadian engineers and by God, they will come up with a solution. They're very good at that, brilliant at that. They're not very good at innovating outside of the box. And you, you see that most of the innovation is coming from places like Alberta Innovates, the Provincial Innovation Agency. And that the conclusion I come to is that Alberta should stop looking for innovation around oil and gas. We should stop looking to the companies. They're not going to do it. They're not, they're not, uh, their history is not in that, uh, shouldn't suggest it. They, they aren't doing anything now. They're pulling back from any innovation that they might have done. Suncor is getting out of the energy transition businesses that it had invested in. And it's almost, it's, I'm arguing that the, the, this, the government, the business community should set up these mission-oriented policies that you're talking about and these projects, and they should go ahead and innovate. And when the time comes, they'll just tell the Alberta, the oil companies, you know, we're going to, we've developed a domestic market here and now we need you to sell uh, your, your oil and gas to these industries as feedstock instead of maybe, you know, American refineries. Because innovation ain't coming from the companies. That's that would be a mistake, but it's one that 
the companies are happy to have policymakers make because it's in their interests. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't single out the oil industry or the Albertan oil industry um, as facing challenges in innovating and responding to disruption, right? I mean, I think, again, you're, you're describing something that the majority of, of industries face and, and the whole kind of idea behind the, the logic of, of mission innovation is that a lot of these really dramatic innovation steps don't come from within companies. They obviously get, you know, and it can go back to the, the oil sands example in SAG-D, you know, they get, once they're developed and sort of shown or proven at some level, they then maybe get nurtured and grown within within companies. Um, but that the the first dramatic steps happen elsewhere. And, and I mean, there's a very, I think there's a very understandable risk reward kind of profile there. You know, we know all the challenges with the idea that, um, you know, companies can't capture the full value of innovation um, and, and R&D expenditure that they are making. Um, so, so these are all sort of things that are not, you know, I think I, I agree with them. I don't think they are, you know, they shouldn't be taken as like, uh, negatives or or you know that there's something wrong with this industry like this is just sort of the way that that we see where we see innovations come from um and i mean similarly when it comes to responding you know i think i think we're seeing oil companies in alberta responding to some extent to pressure from shareholders when it comes to what you know where they want to see the company's focus uh and, and you mentioned kind of a step away from energy transition um and i think again there's a you know it's a, it seems to me to be a very logical conclusion right if i was an investor in an oil company um you know i'm making that choice because of the the business that they are in and what they what they have to offer which is you know oil production and the um the returns that go along with that particularly during you know uh, with what i think is going to be a bumpy period of transition as we're as we're seeing um where you have you know mismatches between supply and demand um as you it's it's kind of all the rules and and things we thought we knew knew about oil growth go out the window um but you know if i want to invest in a clean tech company then i'll invest in a clean tech company um and again i think that's not you know not unique um, when it comes to other sectors, even in energy, where you know a lot of the um, kind of successful developers uh, of renewable energy, you know, didn't necessarily come from the the incumbent, uh, you know, fossil generation space. Again, because it's a, I think it's a very hard, it's a very hard sell to investors to kind of say that you're going to do both things. You have to have some really competitive advantage that you think that you can, you know, transfer over to that other space. And I mean, even even companies, even very large multinational oil company, energy companies are sort of moving away from that space. And I think they have, you know, somewhat more of a credible story to say that, well, maybe they have some competitive advantage through their, um, you know, international networks and experience um, operating in these different regions that they, that they might be the leaders there. Um, so I think it's sort of, you know, all very internally consistent, I guess, what we see, um, what we see happening. Um, and uh, I just lost my train of thought where we started, but, um, but, but yeah, so, so, you know, comes back to, again, this point of the extent to which you want to have mission innovation happening, you need to really think carefully about whose mission you're pursuing, right, and, and who is, focused more on the shorter term as as they are very much incentivized to be by the market versus on the you know 10 20 30 year 
time horizon that you expect disruptive innovations to really um, return fruit is, you know, same as what happened in the case of the oil sands where you had the first, you know, saggy tests were decades before, you know, the, the real explosive growth in the industry um, and our you know, companies are simply not set up and not incentivized to, to pursue that. And, you know, people have argued it, it's getting worse with the sort of short term capitalism. Um, but, but those are very long time scales uh, to, to be thinking on. So can we wrap up our, our conversation this way, Sarah, is that we agree that the uh, Alberta oil and gas companies are facing the same pressures that oil companies are facing across the world. There's nothing new. And in fact, their responses uh, to this are perfectly consistent with other oil companies and companies outside the industry. But if there are any lessons to be learned from previous uh, incumbents that have been in disrupted, is that there has to be at some point some innovation and that the uh, where the incumbent can then re-engineer their business model. And you see, there aren't very many in the oil and gas space globally, but Equinor in Norway would be one. That, that would kind of a unicorn where it's into hydrogen and wind farms and all sorts of things other than just oil and gas. But it's a model that others have tried and like Shell and BP and then and rejected and moved away from. So what does what should lesson should we take away from this? It almost it would sound like if there is not uh, an innovation that happens outside the industry that the Alberta companies can then incorporate somehow to, you know, make the, the pivot I talked about earlier, then they're basically riding the decline curve down into failure at some point. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to find much to disagree with with that. And, and you know, we certainly have seen that happen in other industries. And I think the Equinor one is an interesting example where it's, you know, you have to have kind of the right mix of skills, but also some of these external factors that are certainly outside of the company's control. In that case, you know, being in a place where you have the ability to um, to, to pursue some of these other options, you know, you have an offshore wind uh, resource there. That's obviously not the case uh, in our in our Alberta region. Not a lot of offshore wind in Alberta. Um, but but I think there are other things that you know one could look at, right? And and talk about other resources that are underneath the ground, right? So things like lithium, things like other um, critical minerals that that are part of the energy transition. I think those are the areas that are likely to be more more fruitful, um, and they feel. You know, I think they sound and feel very far away. Um, and that's where I do think that, you know, going back to kind of our history and the, and the history of the Alberta oil industry is, is instructive, right? In terms of, um, you know, there certainly was no embrace of the oil sands. And it was, you know, although it's weird to kind of think that way today, because it is so much, not just part of the industry, but really dominates the oil industry in Alberta. But there was a time when that was really this, you know, other, like totally different, thing and, and not sort of part of the, the industry as it is today. Um, and so it's about, you know, really trying to identify what are those, you know, adjacent competencies or areas that, you know, may one day, if you're successful, they may end up feeling like they were always part of what the resource sector did, uh, arguably. Um, but when it comes to the, you know, policy side, that means that you, you need to have kind of strong leaders who are able to distance themselves or, or you know, overcome some of these 
uh, challenges in, in setting that mission so that you actually have the time and space and, and investment that can go into developing those solutions rather than the, you know, more near term. And, and there's examples from, you know, going back to the, the research in the case study, there were examples of a big push from the conventional oil industry um, for, for investment in enhanced oil recovery um, as, as sort of the answer to reverse the decline in production in Alberta. And, and there was some investment that did happen there, um, but it was dwarfed by the development of the of the oil sands. And so I think that's a very good parallel and sort of very similar type of story of, you know, there's obviously a lot of pressure to pursue solutions that are going to be much closer to the business models of the current incumbents. And in order for government policy to ultimately be successful and to be a, uh, you know, good steward and good use of public funds, it's about sort of overcoming or, or finding ways to direct those pressures. Um, and I think, first of all, that just starts with that acknowledgement, right? So that when people start saying, let's have a climate mood shot or let's have a Manhattan project for climate, the next question is not just what should we do, but okay. And we know that there's going to be pressure um, to ensure that it is non-disruptive. And so how, you know, how are we going to design our process or how are we going to launch this mission, this, you know, mission defining process in a way that, um, overcomes that challenge. And I think that's where we're, you know, we haven't really had that conversation to date. There is a danger here. And the danger, I mean, aside from the ones that we've talked about already, the danger is not acting in a timely fashion. Uh, we have not got a lot of time because if, if the scenario that I sketched out earlier, which is peak oil demand by 2028 or 2030, maybe, and then decline, you know, you don't get immediate decline, you get a bit of a plateau, and then you, the decline begins. So somewhere around the mid 2030s is a good guess. It's a reasonable guess. So that really leaves, you know, Alberta, maybe 12 to, you know, 10 to 10 to 12 years, 13 years to do this. And this is like the metaphorical oil tanker. It does not turn on a dime. It takes a long time. We have, you know, we have to have the conversation you just said we we're not having. Policy has to be put in place. They have to be implemented. There's on and on and on. This is it takes 15 to 20 years to really get this underway. And my concern is that if it doesn't happen soon, that it will just drag out and it won't happen until it's obvious that decline has set in. And then it may be too late. Yeah, I think that's the that's the big concern in terms of there's, you know, certainly no time to waste. And I mean, I think, you know, the the shape of that decline and the implication on pricing, um, you know, have are, are all a little bit open questions. And, you know, I mean, the what I think there is we're in a state now where I don't think there's a major expectation of significant new uh, production, you know, coming online, right? There was a time when people were planning for dramatic oil sands expansion. I think we've sort of largely gotten to a point where, where people agree that that's not likely to happen. And so I think there is, you know, we, we do have a little bit of time in terms of um, there being a window, even say during a period of decline where, you know, where there can be continued production. And, and as I said, they think there will be price volatility in that, um, in that period. Um, but, but certainly, yeah, the, the clock is ticking and, and, you know, we, we need to start to reckon with these, um, with these challenges. Um, you know, I, definitely wouldn't write Alberta out, though, in terms of, you know, we have a lot of uh, resources and a lot of, um, you know, talent and, and skilled people um, 
uh, you know, from both within the, the conventional energy sector and beyond. So I don't think it's by any stretch, you know, game over, um, but but it's certainly something that we, you know, need to increasingly uh, have that, that on, and I think it comes down to really just honest conversations, right? And, and honest looks at what those scenarios look like and what paths we're on and, and making sure that we're, um, you know, planning for that. Um, and, and part of that I think comes, you know, has to come from the, broader set of people in the province that are going to be impacted by this right and and that's where you you know maybe start to see certainly there's examples of missions that have been successfully created and supported through uh broad public support and so i think that's one you know potential pathway that we could see for a successful climate mission well uh sarah you and your your colleague have done a, a good job of ringing the bells the alarm bells uh in this paper and I suspect it's going to take a lot more alarm bell ringing uh, before we really get people's attention in Alberta and particularly on the on the government and the political scene. But uh, this is a, uh, a good effort. And uh, I'm, I've no doubt that we'll be chatting about this again in the near future. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me.